to. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. This semester, we have been working our way through the book of Galatians, and we find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 15, tonight. And uh, last week, I was in Chipotle, Chipotle, and um, I noticed that all the workers there were wearing the same shirt, and on the back of the shirt, it had a little slogan that said, additives are subtractive. And I thought... I see what they're doing there. I see what they're doing there. And then I thought, wait, that's what Galatians is about. It's about Chipotle. And because if, you, if you've been with us, or even if you haven't, the point that Paul has been making in this book over and over and over is that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. And there was a group of teachers that came along in Paul's day that were teaching, yes, you need Jesus, that's important, but you also need to live a good life too if you want God to really accept you. And Paul writes this letter that we know as the book of Galatians as a response to just say, no, Uh, if you add anything to the gospel, you rob the gospel of the goodness of the good news that it is. That additives really are subtractive, spiritually speaking, as well. So we're going to pick up... um, Where we left off last week, we're going to just drop in the middle of chapter 3, Galatians 3, verse 15. I'll read it. It goes like this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, gave, God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until the faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. It's a chunky passage. Why don't I pray and then we'll take a look at it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, 
This night, thank you for this chance to be together. I pray that you would give us focus, despite the heat, despite just the fatigue of week five and getting deeper into the semester, and uh, help us by your spirit to um, have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are softened, uh, to be receptive to what your word might have for us, as challenging or as difficult it is to even understand in reading it. Help us, we pray. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Office. But if you've seen it, then there's a, one of my favorite scenes is when Dwight comes into the office holding a platter of bagels that he's passing around to his coworkers. And he comes in and he says, good morning, everybody. Who would like an authentic New York bagel? And everyone's like, oh my goodness, you drove to New York for these? And they're, they're picking it out and they're thanking him. And as he, they're taking it and thanking him, he says, oh, don't worry about it. Don't mention it. You owe me one. And he kind of has this devilish smile while he does that. And then he goes into Michael's office and he says, hungry, Michael? And Michael's kind of preoccupied on his computer. He's like, no, I had a fish stick sandwich for breakfast. <laughs> He's like, actually, I had two because my girlfriend didn't want hers. Uh, and so he, he reluctantly ends up taking a bagel anyway. And as Dwight is kind of walking out the door, he turns back and he says, you owe me. And walks out. And then it kind of cuts to that monologue scene where it's just Dwight looking at the camera. And here's what he says. Can't a guy just buy bagels for his friends so they'll owe him a favor which he can use to get someone fired who stole a co-manager position from him anymore? Jeez. And it's this gift that he's giving people, right? But there's this catch. There's this. There's strings attached. He's really wanting something in return. He's wanting people to owe him a favor. Now, Andy enters the story, Andy enters the scene, and Andy has been raised up to, if anybody, you know, does something for you, you return the favor promptly. So he comes up to Dwight and says, hey, I took the liberty of polishing your briefcase while you were in the other room. So now the favor has been returned and Dwight is getting frustrated. In fact, they do this cut scene to Andy doing a monologue, and here's what Andy says. You give me a gift, bam, thank you note. You invite me somewhere, pow, RSVP. You do me a favor, wham, favor returned. And so they, they get in this thing where as soon as Dwight does something nice for Andy, Andy immediately returns the favor. So he does the briefcase thing, and then Dwight holds the door open so that Andy can leave like the little kitchen area. So Andy walks through, and now Andy owes Dwight. So Andy holds the door open for Dwight so that he can walk through. And as they're walking to their desk, uh, Dwight offers him generously a a health fitness tip on how he can walk to not put pressure on his knees. And so then uh, Andy feels the need to return the favor by straightening Dwight's jacket. And then so uh, Dwight takes Andy's glasses and he's cleaning his glasses and, no, the other way around. Andy takes Dwight's glasses and he's cleaning them and then Dwight takes uh, his wireless mouse and preemptively changes the batteries for him. And so on and on and back and forth, they go for this entire episode. And the, the reason why I bring this up is because you know when you're watching this intuitively that Dwight's not really giving gifts to people. What he's doing, whenever you give somebody a gift, but there's strings attached to it, it's, it ceases to be a gift. That's not how gifts work. I mean, think about it like, uh, think about this as an example. If your parents agree, if they promise you, I'm, I will pay for your rent this semester. That's like great. That's an awesome gift. 
And then you get into the semester a little bit. And things happen, one thing leads to another, and you end up having some bad grades, some bad tests. And you get that phone call from your parents that's kind of awkward where they sternly kind of look at you and say, hey, uh, if you want us to keep paying for your rent, you're going to need to get your grades back up. And if you notice, something just changed. Because now what they offer, what they promised, is no longer a promise. It's no longer a gift. There's something that you have to do now. You have to perform in order to earn it. It can only be one or the other. This is how gift-giving works. You, you get something either because somebody just promised it to you or you get it because you earned it by your performance. It's one or the other. It's mutually exclusive. Now, here's why I'm talking about this in relation to Galatians. Because we have been saying week in and week out for the past few weeks, beating this drum that you are accepted by God purely by grace. It's purely a gift. It's purely his promise to you. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't perform for it. There's nothing you could do to get it. There's nothing you could do to lose it. It's an unconditional gift, promise. No strings attached. But the problem is any person that just casually opens up the Bible is going to see a whole bunch of rules and laws and instructions on how to live your life. And the big question is, okay, well, what do you do with that? If it really is this unconditional gift, how do you make sense of what to do with all these laws? That's the question that Paul is trying to answer with this passage. What do you do with the law if this whole thing really is all grace, Jesus plus nothing? Well, here's what he's going to do. He's going to show us two things that we really have to learn, two key realities that we really have to understand. What the law doesn't do and what the law does do. So that's what I want to try to unpack with you tonight. What the law does not do and then what the law does do. And just as a warning on the front end, even as we read it, it felt kind of dense and intense. And so this, this is going to require a little bit of theological heavy lifting from y'all tonight. Be forewarned. But let's just start at the top. What the law does not do. Let's pick up at verse 15. Let me read it. It says this. <clears throat> Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, here's what he's doing. He's just walking through the chronology of the Bible, and he starts with the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and he says, hey, there was this dude named Abraham, and God comes to him and just blindsides him with grace, unconditional promises. Abraham, I will bless you. I will accept you. I will give you this land. You will inherit the earth. You will become a nation. You will bless the world. Grace, grace, grace. Abraham didn't do anything to earn it. There was no law that even existed then for him to do anything to earn. He just got blindsided with gift, promise, and grace. That's the story of Abraham. And this is the whole point of Galatians 3. That this is how God fundamentally relates to people. It's through gift, through 
grace. But then, 430 years later, you get to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and God comes to this guy named Moses, and he gives him the law. The Ten Commandments, Leviticus, all that stuff that you skip when you try to read the Bible through in a year. And all those laws he gives to Moses. And that raises this big kind of red flag question. Well, which one is it, God? You gave Abraham a promise. You gave Moses these laws. So did God change his mind? In other words, does, does God change the way that he relates to people now? Meaning, does God say... It's no longer about my promise to you. It's now about your performance. There are conditions by which you have to live up to in order for me to bless you, accept you, love you, all that stuff. Is that what is happening? And Paul's answer is this. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, in verse 15, he says, this would never fly legally, so this would never fly spiritually either. So th- think of it like a legal example. Here's a, here's a legal scenario. Let's say that I wanted to write you into my will because I'm just that nice. And so we create this official document. It's officialized. It's notarized. It's signed. There's a lawyer present. And in this will, it says, when Matt Howell passes away, you get to inherit my house and my car. In the document, you get it, I promise it to you, you have my inheritance of the house and the car. But then let's say two weeks after this official meeting with this lawyer, you and I are sitting down at Chipotle. And I look at you and say, hey, you know how I promised you that stuff? Um, I will only give that to you if you get straight A's, and if you graduate with honors, and if you major in pre-med. Now, you have every legal right to look at me and say, that's really great, but I have an official signed document that tells me you're going to give it to me either way. So I have no legal, uh, I'm not legally bound to listen to anything that you just said. And Paul, that's, that's Paul's point. If there's an official human covenant contract form that's made, if it's duly established, you can't add to it, you can't take away from it, it's set in stone. Look at verse 15 again. He says this, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. Here's Paul's big point in verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, meaning if what God promises you, your inheritance, comes by your performance, your obedience to the law, then that means it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Time out. You may have gotten lost in all of that or bored with all of that. So let me just boil all of verse 15 through 18 down to one nugget for you. Here's what the law doesn't do. It doesn't change the fact that God's acceptance of you is purely always by grace. That's the point that he's making. The fact that the law exists doesn't change the fundamental reality that God always, always, always accepts people purely by grace through faith in Christ. Now, if you're thinking through this with me, you should be asking yourself the question, okay, if my keeping the law is not what makes me right with God, then why does God give the law in the first place? If it's not about me obeying the law, performing and keeping the law, 
then what then was the purpose of the law? And it's interesting that Paul anticipates that that's what your question is, because look at verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? Well, let's think about it. That's what the law does not do. It doesn't change the fact that he always relates to you by grace. But let's think now about what the law actually does, what the purpose of the law is. And here it is, verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. That is to say, it was added to show you that you're a transgressor, that we're sinners, that we need forgiveness. So here's how it works. Let's say that you want to get serious about this God thing. And you say, I really want to start obeying God. I really want to start doing the right thing. I really want to start taking my faith seriously. So you uh, find the Ten Commandments in your Bible and you say, okay, ten seems like too much. I'm just going to do one. Let's just pick one. Let's pick the tenth one. The last one. That's really the easiest one. Uh, Do not covet. Covet is the tenth one. Which is basically a command, if you think about it, um, that God's commanding you to be absolutely content in every situation. And you say, okay, I'm going to obey one commandment for one 24-hour period and see how I do. I'm only going to obey that commandment for one 24-hour period and see how I do. Absolute contentment, which means, practically, this means for you, that you have to live an entire day without comparing yourself to anybody else. You have to live an entire day uh, with no uh, bragging or boasting or name-dropping. No self-pity, no um, crushing depression over your circumstances, no critical spirit, no jealousy or envy over that person in your class that got the grade that you felt like you deserved or got the project that you felt like you earned or has the body that you want or has the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you want. No comparison, no envy, no jealousy. You don't need anything. You don't need to be right in conversations. You don't need to control people. You don't need to control situations. You're just perfectly content. For 24 hours. How do you think you do? My guess is, if you were self-aware enough, at the end of one day, you would feel like a total failure. You get to the end of the day and be like, man, I'm not content with anything. I'm angry at everything. I'm angry at traffic. I'm angry at the slow walkers on Ped Walkway. I'm angry at my professor. I I always compare myself to people. They have the body I want. They have the money that I want. They have the job that I want. They have the, the career path that I want. They have the friends that I want. Everybody has everything else that I want. And you would feel the weight of, okay, I couldn't keep one law for one day. Feel the weight of having to keep the entire law for your entire life. It crushes you into the dirt. And that's the point. The law was given to expose you, to convince you that you need rescuing from yourself. God's law is is a gift to you to smash the delusion in your head that you would ever think that you could earn God's favor through your performance. Because it shows you, I can't perform. I need rescuing from myself. It's God's gift to you to show you, I am not good. Think of, think of the law kind of like a mirror. Think of it like a handheld mirror. Let's say that you 
wake up in the morning, you don't have time to get ready, you don't have time to check yourself on the mirror, you just throw on some clothes, grab your bag, and you're off to class. And you go from class to class, and you kind of have a busy morning, you haven't had a chance to go in the bathroom and check yourself out, see how you're doing. And so you're, you're walking back to your uh, place on Ped Walkway, and I bump into you, and I just happen to hand you this handheld mirror that I'm <laughs> carrying around on campus. And you take it from me, and you look at yourself, and you're shocked because you have this like massive zit on your nose that's been there the whole morning that you didn't know about. And then you check your teeth and you've got like this green piece of lettuce that's like hanging over like a front tooth that you're trying to get, you're trying to scrape out now. And you've noticed, oh man, I've got this like dried spaghetti sauce on my chin from the night before. I should have washed my face last night. And oh my, I've got this like long, weird hair growing out of my cheek right here. And so the, the law comes to you And it doesn't make you a mess. It just shows you with crystal clear clarity that you are one. It exposes to you that you're a mess. That's what it does. It was given to show you that you're a transgressor. And here's what's interesting. Look at verse 21. The logic of verse 21 says that the law cannot impart life. Meaning the law exposes the dirt on your face, but it can't clean the dirt on your face. So imagine there we are in Ped Walkway, you're freaking out about what you just saw in the mirror, and you take the mirror, and you try rubbing your face with it to try to get the spaghetti sauce off your chin, and you start using the mirror to brush your teeth to try to get that stuff out of your teeth, like, you would look like an idiot because it's absurd. That's not what the mirror is designed for. It's designed to expose you, but it itself can't clean you. And here's what this means practically, because this is how we live our life every single day. I don't know if you've had that moment where you just kind of feel like a sudden sense of guilt and regret and just kind of shame over the way that you're living your life. You just kind of have that moment where you're like, gosh, I've got to like make some changes. I'm staying out way too late. I'm drinking a little too much. I'm, I'm not taking my faith seriously. Like, I've got to get my crap together. You feel like exposed by the law that you're kind of a mess and that you need to make some changes. So what do you do? You say, okay, I'm going to sign up for an REO small group. I, I am going to go on that fall conference. I'm going to go through Quest. I'm going to finally like start checking out the churches in Knoxville that I know are kind of out there. I am going to get to bed earlier. I'm going to set a time, time to study and, and like hit pause on what you're doing. What did you just do in that moment? The law came to you and kind of crushed you. Oh, I need to change. I need to change. And then you picked up the law, all these rules. That's why you use all this should language. I should stop doing bad stuff and I should start doing good stuff. I should read the Bible more. I should stop drinking. I should check out those churches. Just shoulding all over yourself. (laughs) Picking up the rules. Why do y'all like that? More shoulds. More rules. But what you're doing in that moment is you picking up the handheld mirror and trying to clean yourself with it. And Paul is saying in Galatians 3, that's not Christian. That's not good news. There's no hope in you just picking up the law to try to fix yourself. More rules, more activity, sign up for more stuff. And sadly, that's what we all typically do because we don't know of anything else to do. What else do you do? You're there, you're crushed, I want to change, I feel convicted, I feel regret. What do I do? 
So what do you do? Where do you go? If you don't go back to the law, where do you go? Well, look at verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law shows you that you're dirty so that you go to the one place that can actually clean you, which is Jesus himself. The law shows you that you're a mess. It shows you that you're a train wreck so that you actually go to Jesus. So put yourself back in that situation. There you are. You're exposed. You feel like a mess. You feel like a failure. You feel weak. You're saying that thing where you're like, I can't believe I did it again. I promised to God and to myself I would never do that again. And I did it again. And there you are with all your shame and all of your guilt and all of your regret. And you want to change. The law has done its job. If in that moment you begin to think something like this, I need help. I can't just think, I'm going to try harder and do better now because I know I can't do better. I'm the problem. I need someone to rescue me from me. And so the law takes you by the hand and it leads you to Jesus. With you and all of your shame and all of your regret and all of your lack of faith and all of your mistakes. And Jesus embraces you. He does not scold you. He does not lecture you. He does not sit there with his arms crossed and uh, shame you. But he embraces you. And you experience the welcoming love of God for sinners. You experience the hospitality of God to welcome train wrecks of people like you and me. In fact, the, the law, it actually drives you deeper into God's heart. Because in that moment, you're, you're actually convinced, he loves me because he loves me. He doesn't love me because of my performance Because look how horrible my performance is. I've hit rock bottom. He loves you because he loves you. And what that does is it frees you to say, it's it's okay that I'm not okay. I'm freed to admit that I'm a mess. Because it doesn't matter how much faith I lack or how much love I lack. It doesn't change his unstoppable, unrelenting assault of grace and mercy and love for sinners. Now, I want to try to answer one last question, and then we're done. I've really loved um, interacting with y'all through the book of Galatians because I've had lots of people text me or email me or come up to me after RUF and ask questions, and uh, I really love that. And uh, one question that I've gotten a lot has been in some form that's like this. Uh, Okay, I get this whole grace thing, Jesus plus nothing thing. But aren't we also supposed to obey? Like, doesn't God want us to obey? If it's Jesus plus nothing, doesn't that need to be like, uh, you know, nuanced a little? And I love that question because that shows me that y'all are like wrestling with what the Bible is actually saying. Like you're grappling with the implications of is the gospel really Jesus plus nothing? And I can't fully answer that question tonight, but I want to take one stab at it before we're done. So here's my stab. Look at verse um, 25. It says this. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Another way to to think about that would be like we're no longer under the the tutelage of the law. It's like the the law is earlier compared to like an elementary school teacher in this passage. And it's no longer teaching us what it needs to teach us. Meaning, if we've learned the lesson, 
I can't obey the law to earn God's acceptance. That's not how it works. I have to go completely to grace, completely Jesus plus nothing. The law has done its job. It's taught me that. Does that mean I have no other relationship to the law in any other way? And the answer is no. Uh, You do have a relationship with the law, just in a different way. Uh, Think of it like this. Um, Think of my kids. For my kids, my wife and I, my wife and me, my wife and I are, both of us, we are their supervisors. Uh, Kind of to use that language of verse 25. They're under our supervision. And we have certain laws and rules that we uh, want them to obey. One of them is that we want them to be trustworthy. Not trustworthy, truthful. We want them to be trustworthy too, but also truthful. Meaning, when we catch our children lying, we discipline them. We punish them. So here are our children under our supervision. And they mostly tell the truth. But it's mostly driven by this fear of punishment, this fear of what if I get caught. When they get older and mature and leave our house and they go off to college, I'm not going to relate to them in the same way that I do now. Like I'm not going to ground my son when he's a freshman in Reese if he gets caught lying or something. But does that mean that my hope is now that they're not under my supervision, they can just live however they want. They can do whatever they want now. Is that what I want for them? No. What I want for them is for that those values and those principles, when they were under my supervision, to be internalized in them so that they now are truthful people, not because they have to, not because they should, but because they want to, because that's who they are. When God's grace grips your heart, it, it makes you realize I don't need to obey the law to earn God's acceptance because I already have it. But that now means that the law, in a different capacity, becomes internalized in you. So that you actually obey, start obeying the law better in a different way. Think of it like this. When I was in high school, I, uh, my dad gave me and a friend tickets to go see the Dallas Mavericks play basketball. And uh, my dad got us, um, like, the corporate box, fancy, like, VIP seats for me and a friend. So it was, like, mega awesome. Because I remember we went in with these badges, and we go into the arena, and all these other scrubs are going to their cheap seats. And me and my buddy are, like, walking, like, past security, like, showing off the badge and, like, going into this, like, suite and we get into the suite, and it's like amazing views. Like the arena is right there. And in the little suite, there's like this buffet line of all this food. I just remember there was like a big tub of like free Cokes. I, as a high schooler, that was a big deal to me. I remember I had like six Cokes that night. And there were TVs of other games playing. And um, the seats were like these big, squishy, like lazy boys that were just like chilling and watching this game. And because I was there on my dad's behalf and representing my dad, I decided to dress up a little bit. Like, I didn't roll in there in, like, sweatpants and flip-flops. You know, this is probably what I mean by dressing up. I put some form of a collar on my torso. And um, so I get into this game, and nobody in their right mind would think, that guy is in here because he's dressed up a little bit. 
Nobody would ever think. I didn't get in there because of how I was dressed. I got in there 100% because of the badge. My dad's credentials. Dad plus nothing is what got me in. But because I got in, to honor my dad that I was representing, I dressed up. Not as the reason of getting in, but as the result of the fact that I already was in. You get in with God. God accepts you 100% on the basis of Jesus' credentials. It is Jesus plus nothing. This is why in verse 24 he starts talking about being justified. Remember we talked about this last week. Justification is that great exchange where Jesus takes all of your sin and you get all of his righteousness. And he gets what you deserve, which is death on a cross. And you get what he deserves, which is the adoration and the approval and the acceptance of God. You are made right with God 100% on the credentials of Jesus. And the gravity of that gift now engenders gratitude in you. Where you think, because of what I have been given... My heart is now moved to want to live differently, to want to dress up, as it were, to honor my father. Not because that gets me in with him, but because I actually want to. When, when you see day in and day out how fake you are, how much of a contradiction you are, how much you actually don't like God, how much you want to be in control of your life, And day after day, you experience his embrace, his love, his mercy, his hospitality. Your heart moves from, I should, I should, I should, to, I want, I want, I want. That's the dynamic. I want to end with this. We just sang the song, and I thought it would be a good thought to end on. Therefore, my trust is in the Lord, and not in my own merit. On him my soul shall rest. His word upholds my fainting spirit. And here's a great line. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort, and my sweet support. His promised mercy. That's your fort. That's your comfort. That's your support. Jesus plus nothing. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to be led by the law to the arms of Jesus, where there is no condemnation, there is no shame, but there is freedom and transformation and healing and cleansing. Father, for those of us in this room that feel like um, that we have hit rock bottom, that, it, that we're so troubled by what we have said or thought or done or what we are doing or are thinking or are feeling. I pray that your word and your spirit would do a great work in them tonight to free them, to not run to despair, but rather to run into the arms of Jesus. Would that heal us? Would that cleanse us? And would that begin to make us new from the inside out tonight? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.